Three, two, one, roll the footage! Everybody to the Strategy Sprints podcast. I'm your host, Simon Severino. What if you could hang out every day with sprinters and ask them about their problems, their workflows, and their solutions? That's exactly what we do here every day. And today we explore with management professor and author of Inclusify, how you can become a Jedi, how to use data to move DEI strategy forward, diversity examples, good and bad out there, and what we can do to increase our diversity in our own executive boards. Welcome everybody, Dr. Stephanie Johnson. Hello, I want to do a high five like the folks in the intro. <laughs> and uh, I want to become a Jedi. How can we become a Jedi? Absolutely. Um, so Jedi stands for justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. And so maybe it's just a little more complex than focusing on diversity and inclusion, right? Diversity might be a number, like how many women do we have at certain levels of the organization and certain functions in the organization? It's a count. Inclusion is how do those women or people of color or women of color feel, right? Do they feel like they can bring their full selves to work and um, that they can be authentic and they have opportunities for promotion? That's the inclusion. And then there's also things like equity or you creating systems and structures that make up for the reality that things aren't equitable. Like think of um, mentoring opportunities. Who mentored you? It's probably someone who is quite similar to you. And same thing for, for me, I mentor people who are similar to me. But when I came up in my career, there were not a lot of um, Mexican-American female business professors. And so I had to get mentoring from someone who wasn't similar to me. And sometimes that happens organically. But if you admit that we're all likely to kind of want to mentor people who are like us, then sometimes you have to be a little more intentional. And so you might have to create specific programs to allow access that's maybe equity, giving people what they need to succeed. And then if you take it even further, it's um, justice and trying to increase um, or make up for past injustices in the organization by providing added opportunities for people who might not have had them. Oh my gosh, that was such a long explanation. Or you can just embrace the force. It's also would totally do it and you become Jedi. I love it. And that's the difference between the three terms. So at some point you wrote a book uh, and I am curious, what was the trigger? What happened in your life that you said, I have to write a book? Okay, so secret truth, the reality is, I always loved pop management books. And I'll call my book a pop. It's a pop management book is a book you can buy at an airport or Barn Borders or Barnes and Noble or Target or something like that, right? Versus management books that I use in my classroom as a business professor. They're like, no one buys those unless forced to by your professor. Um, so... That's kind of the truth. Like I always read them like a weirdo, like even in high school and stuff. I just love the the good ones, I'll say, are very science-based, but basically translated into English with examples that make sense and are actionable. And so I always just 
this is something that I wanted to do. But the thing that finally pushed me over the top was this inclusion thing, because I'd been studying diversity for a really long time. And I work with a lot of companies and I gave them all these great strategies for increasing diversity and they did them. Many were successful. And then they came back and said, Hey, uh, Stephanie, we increased the number of people of color in our applicant pool. And therefore we hired more and we have higher turnover all of a sudden, like folks are leaving. And some of that talent that we worked so hard to recruit and change our systems and structures to make sure that they were fair. And these are like high value employees. They left within a year or within two years. And, and then I'm kind of like, well, how did you treat them when they were there? <laughs> Hiring people is really only like step one. And so at that point, and this was probably 2016, um, I don't know that people were talking as much about inclusion. It was like diversity, diversity, diversity. And as companies started to do a better job on diversity, it became really apparent that <laughs> you have to still treat people the way they want to be treated and create an environment where anyone can be successful if you want those folks to stay because other companies are doing the same thing as you and trying to recruit the best talent. And so they can leave and go somewhere else if they don't feel like they have the real chance to succeed in your organization. Um, so I did a lot of talks, like talks, presentations, presentations, presentations. And then it occurred to me, I could live out my lifelong dream of writing a pot management book and like more widely disseminate this knowledge about how to create inclusion and not just diversity. Well, there are some good examples of companies that are doing it in a helpful way. Oh, what are some? Yeah. Okay. So... There's so many, um, and you know, more more so this year, I think, ever than ever before. But you know, I really look at companies like PayPal um, for one because of the just dramatic transformation from what I think PayPal's original culture was very high on belonging, like people really connected and they felt like a strong team. But it was one that didn't really value uniqueness. It was more about fitting in than standing out. And they have since changed that um, culture to be one that values uniqueness and belonging. Like it's in their, it's on their um, homepage. And from what I understand, like I interviewed their CEO and employees and it, it sounds very authentic. Like people do feel like they can be there themselves. Um, they have great programs that help support equity um, I think Starbucks is another one, like also at Starbucks is another CEO I interviewed and I talk about them in the book. And I mean, they're just constantly pushing the envelope to become more and more inclusive. It's challenging because, you know, you can, if you're a Starbucks or a PayPal or a Salesforce, you can have this, you know, the leadership at the top is very committed to this and they can have great policies and they are building a culture but you never, one employee can kind of, you know, go their own way and still make mistakes that put you on the bad news page. And I think that still happens. Like I see that, I've seen that at Starbucks and then I'm like, Starbucks is one of the best companies. Look at their board, look at their programs, their healthcare. And someone's like, well, look at this Starbucks in Michigan. And it's like, you know, companies are led by leaders, but they're comprised of people and people have their own 
free will and you can do so much when you're selecting and training and socializing employees, but you still kind of people are people. So you never know. Beautiful. And so how was the process of writing the book and interviewing? What what surprised you along the way? Uh, I loved writing. There's like, I really want to write another book. I don't know if I want to like sell another book, but I love, loved, like I woke up every morning at the crack of dawn and went downstairs and I wrote until my kids came down for breakfast and then went back to my normal professor life. Um, that was, that part was just like amazing. Um, it was a really fulfilling, just like fun, fun time. Uh, things that surprised me, you know, I think I was really pleasantly surprised by how well-intentioned people are. Just like I was expecting kind of the truth, you know, like kind of people's real feelings to come out and lots of comments that were like um, negative. And what I really found is when it comes to inclusion, maybe I don't know about for diversity, but for inclusion, I feel like leaders really want to be inclusive. Like if you ask people, do you want different opinions and perspectives and make the best decisions? They're like, yes, of course. Like everyone's felt excluded at some point in their lives and like their opinion didn't matter or they weren't part of the team. And as far as I found, no one wants to do that or create that feeling in others. I think they just didn't always know what to do to like make a more inclusive space because it's a skill, right? And it's not one that we learned in school, like we might have unconsciously learned it, but um, there's no inclusion class. And so I thought that was really surprising. And then the other thing that came out that I wasn't expecting was this phenomenon of, um, I call it the white knight, but it's like many women talked about bosses they had who were trying to be inclusive, but in doing so kind of undermined them you know, so they really were trying to save them rather than prepare them for future growth and leadership because because of their good intentions. So it's kind of a backfire of their good intentions. And once I heard it a couple of times, I started to ask other people about it. And then just I'm like, this is a thing. Apparently this happens all the time. And it's something I didn't know about before doing the research for the book. White knights, like, I am the white savior. I'm coming to save you, but nobody needs to be saved. Exactly. Well, and it just sends a bad message because if you do need to be saved, what does that say about you? Mm. Strong. Beautiful. I am so curious who you nominate for the strategy award after one word from our sponsor. Hey, if you love what you are hearing, you will love our free masterclasses. Go grab them at strategysprints.com. When everybody's zigging, this person is zigging. But from your perspective, they're doing the right thing. Who do you pick? I am going to nominate Erica Dewan. And she's the author of a book that just came out called Digital Body Language. And so um, I think what's unique about her work, and she's written other past, you know, best-selling books. But um, rather than looking at, you know, how are we going to get back to normal and stuff like that, which so many of us are studying, she's like, how can you lead the pack and be the best at communicating in a virtual environment? Love it. And and so she, she speaks about this part of the body and the language? I think so. And even what you type, um, exclamation, question mark, your facial expressions, um, it's just like really subtle stuff that, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I got flamed over the last year. People who just 
I think there's miscommunication electronically, especially like an email. And because you don't have the vo like the visual cues sometimes, like it things can spiral out of control. And so I wish I had read her book. I wish I had come out before I got into these big arguments with people because then I would have had some strategies and recognition of realizing this is going the wrong way and adding exclamation points after my sentences is not helping. <laughs> I need to read the book because yes. my friends call me the cyborg. I'm, I'm in Zoom <laughs> all the time with, with, with all people on the, on the planet every day. I need this. Yes, Beautiful. yes. It's a great book. Beautiful. And what are books that inspired you? Uh, okay, so one of my favorites is Drop the Ball uh, by Tiffany Dufu. And, and you know, I, I told you I read these management books when I was in high school. This is a more recent book, but it's about um, letting go of women's desire for perfection and having it all. And like, I'm the perfect mom who had the perfect party for my kids. And I have to make sure everyone has like a nicely packed lunch and dinner is always cooked. And I have a full-time job as a professor. And when I'm free, I write, you know, national best-selling books and, and just like getting out, get over it. Like it's not possible. We're killing ourselves. It's exhausting. I think women in the, the reason that makes me think of it actually is um, during the pandemic, that book like saved my life because I couldn't be perfect. I could, and I didn't even try. I'm like, my kids are not going to hand in homework on the Google upload platform that my kids are, were, especially when the pandemic first started, little seven, um, no, at that time, six years old was my son. And he like never even used a computer. And he's supposed to be uploading these, this work to a Google drive that I couldn't figure out how to use. I'm just like, we'll mail it in, you know, like, give, whatever, give him an F in first grade, because it's, it's just too much. Like, I can't, I couldn't do it. Teaching like homeschooling was so, so difficult. Trying to be the best homeschooler is just like, it's just not going to happen. If it's not, if it's something you love, then like kudos to you, but it wasn't something I loved and it wasn't doing anyone any favors. <laughs> My daughter um, said, so I'm a college professor, right? And I'm trying to teach her something. And I'm like, here's the deal, learn it or don't. It's either like you want to know it or you don't want to know it and you won't know anything. So make your choice. <laughs> and she's like, you are so bad at this. Like, I thought you were supposed to be a teacher. Is this what you say to your students? And I'm like, it is. Yeah. I'm like, learn it or not. Like, if you want to be an effective leader, I am going to present you material, but I'm not going to force you to do it. Like, that's your choice. But it's a little different with like grownups and nine-year-olds. <laughs> so I just Powerful. definitely. That. Powerful. Drop the ball, everybody. Drop the ball. <laughs> we are too perfect as parents, as, as people. We are too perfect. Drop the ball. Beautiful. <laughs> and what's the second book? Oh, a second book. Um, I'm reading a, a, a book that's not a pop management book, but, um, and I'm not all the way done with it, but it's called Ageless Talent. And um, it's written by a, a few different people. There's a few contributing authors, um, but one of them is a friend of mine, Lisa Finkelstein's her name, and she's one of the editors of the book. And it's really talking about um, how diversity and age is so important. And this is something I wrote an article about in Marketplace, um, that there's just a benefit of having a mix, a diversity when it comes to older generations and younger generations. And 
as like someone who's over 40, I'm like starting to get into that. Now I'm going to be the older generation. And it's very useful to read some of the facts and reasons why that diversity and that input is so important. Because I think we're, we live in a society right now where I feel like youth is valued over wisdom. You know, like you, you're washed up, you, you can't learn anything new. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. And it's so far from the truth. When you actually look at the data, which like few people do, um, then this book really lays it out and you're like, oh, okay, this made, this helped my self-esteem. And it also gives me some good lessons about managing people and working with others and recognizing the value that age diversity brings. So people don't, I mean, that's the extreme level of bias and discrimination that we don't always recognize. We think about gender, we think about race, we think about LGBTQ+, but man, being like a person in your 40s or 50s you face a lot of bias and people don't feel bad about just like straight out to your face saying like, oh, well, you know, you won't get this because you programmed in DOS or whatever. <laughs> they just, they don't feel bad, I think. Ageism is real. And especially in, in terms of digital skills, right? Yeah. We assume. And, uh, and sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not. I, I have experienced both people joining my team and then my own team saying, hey, she's much too young. And oh. I was like, oh, what's happening here? And uh, so what is the assumption here about from age? And and other side also, will they be able to cope with the digitized, digitization level that we have if they are too old? Um, and how, how do you see this evolving right now, the, the ageism? I know it's so annoying because when I first started as a faculty member, so I finished my PhD when I was 25. This is like very, very young. And I remember applying for a job and in the job interview, I was like sitting there and it was like a panel interview. So there's more than one person. And they had my resume on piece of paper because it was, you know, a long time ago. And the like two interviewers are, they're reading my resume and they're looking at each other and they're like, this is my digital body language. And I'm like, uh, do you have a question? You know, and um, one of them finally just says, I'm, I'm sorry, we just thought you'd be older. Mm. And I'm like, I think of myself as a very funny person. And so I said, um, oh, I will be. <laughs> the day after that, and the day after that, and I'm like, let's be honest, gentlemen, this tree is only going one way. <laughs> And, and they literally were like, all right, thank you. <laughs> we are done for today. <laughs> so I did not get the job, obviously. But in other, you know, in the same year, I learned not to do that again. But I was told like, well, you know, the MBA students, which MBA is like the master's in business administration. So you're usually like eh, 35, you come back and um, you're a well-seasoned professional and you want to up your skills. And people would say, oh, the MBA students, just they like eat young female faculty alive. Young female faculty don't do well here. The students give them bad teaching ratings and so they're not successful. And it's like, can you at least like give me a chance to fail before you decide that I can't teach the MBA? I actually do a great job. White night right there. Yes. Well, and it's illegal. Mm -hmm. Even if your customers prefer... Um, if, if you're just saying we we only like to hire older people, in fact, the 
you know, legislation on age says you cannot discriminate against people over 40, but it doesn't protect people under 40. But when you say young female faculty, now you're doing, you're discriminating against women. So it's age plus discrimination. And so technically it's like kind of illegal to not hire people out of fear that the customer, which is like students are going to not like them. You have to like, you have to hire them based on their qualifications. And if people don't like them, you can fix the students or fix the faculty, but like, you can't just leave them out. And okay, so now flash forward, I think it's so tough for women because then as a woman, I think you become older really fast. Like you flip from like, oh, wow, you were far too young to, oh, you're just like the right age. And then like all of a sudden you're like an older woman. What a bummer. I, th I think men have it a little bit easier. They're not, they have a longer lifespan, but um, that's why I think the Ageless Talent book is so important because it really is trying to bring these issues to light and say, you know, these are biases just like anything else. And they're wrong. Like, it's not true that, I don't think this is in the book, but it's not true that young female faculty or young faculty or female faculty can do a good job teaching students. And it's not true that people who are older can't thrive in tech. Like how young is Bill Gates? And like, this is like, give me a break. The masters of tech are all older at this point. You know, it's just maybe not our stereotype because we think of the like young college dropout who designed Facebook, but there's many more people who can do that, right? That's like, and that's actually probably an anomaly. If you look at the the data, it just happens to stand out so visibly that we, that's kind of what comes to mind. So I think it's just like the same as anything else. If you're saying, you know, looking at men and women or people of color and non-people of color, um, judge people on their qualifications, <laughs> what they can do, like actually invest and in, rather than reading a book by its cover, talking about so many books, like just read the book, you know, do your homework, find out about the person and what they have to offer. And Ageism. you look so young. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Ageism is so real. And uh, I have experienced it in, in, in places where I would expect it. Uh, and uh, and I, I didn't find ageism there. And in places where I would never expect it, I found it. For example, I'm in the most formal executive uh, committees and boards, and uh, and I see a lot of openness. Uh -huh. And um, and then I was at a dance festival with my kids. And so I bring my boys to dance workshops, dance classes. And yeah, well, some of them were ballet and uh, they're a little bit more stiff. And they, they were looking at me like, how are you there coming here with kids <laughs> out of the class? And I was like, oh, really? Jeez. So it's interesting where, where, where these experiences are. And um, it's, it's fascinating. And it's an, it's an evolving topic. So what's next for you? What happens now that the book is out there? I know. Well, it's a year. So actually yesterday, June 2nd, was my one-year anniversary of the book. It came out on June 2nd, 2020. And it's like been such a weird year, right? Um, so I think a lot has changed and I feel really proud of the impact that the book's had and just like the number of people who've bought the book, all the like bestseller lists and, you know, having a chance to be on podcasts and stuff like this. Um, but I think it's like outdated already. It's old, just like me. Yeah. Um, because- Again, yeah. <laughs> Right, because so much has changed, and 
I would have thought, you know, some of these things were really timeless. And I really worked hard to put in like, this is the most cutting edge and everything is data backed. Like I did the study. If no one's done the study, I went out and did the study to see what are the things that really work when it comes to building inclusion or trying to increase diversity. And then all of a sudden in what is, you know, very tragic and beautiful, we had this year of 2020 that was just like brought to light so much racial inequity. And then like the COVID-19 pandemic on top of that, which showed us, uh, you know, huge disparities and completely rewrote the script for how we work, changed everything. So now I'm like looking at these studies and there's things that, I mean, I even looking back at some research I did where I look at things like, let me say race and, and gender. And like, maybe I missed out in analyzing the data on things like the intersectionality, like oftentimes because I don't have enough data from any one group to look at, well, how are Asian women responding to this or black men? Like we're just, we don't look at things in that way. And I think in the last year, and we should have known this already, but I think the realization is that's extremely important. You know, <laughs> there's differences. Um, but then also like in the book, I have a list of companies that have gone you know, done extraordinary things. And I like sought out these companies, interviewed their CEOs. How did you ever do this? Set goals for diversity. That's like something Starbucks do. They set goals. It's like everyone set goals this year. Like it's just such a dramatic shift. The one thing that was like the differentiator of like so few companies are tying executive compensation to diversity, equity, inclusion that they deserve to be highlighted in this book. And now it's like, everyone's tying. Mm. So we, I think we just need to recalibrate like what is right. And, and then things like um, trying to encourage people to be their authentic selves at work. And that that's the uniqueness part and making people feel included. I think it's just a little different. Like it's hard not to be my authentic self as maybe you see when I'm like hanging out at home, I feel if I were in my office, I would probably feel much different. I'm not sure I would tell you that story about my, um, my train going one direction. And so I just think we need new data and this new world. And hopefully, you know, this is something that continues to grow and evolve. And it's not just um, a moment, but it is actually a state shift and things will not go back. And so I think hopefully this year, 2021, 2022 will be a year of massive data collection to see, you know, which of our lessons learned still hold true and what are some assumptions that we really need to rethink and um, make, you know, changes to our recommendations for companies who, you know, I don't want them to invest in things that don't work anymore. Yeah, this is so beautiful. Yesterday we had on the show John Streletsky who wrote The Big Five for Life. Yeah. And he, he said he's so excited about the social mobility that is possible right now. You can be 16, you can be in your basement yeah. and you can talk to professors, you can talk to, uh, influencers in your field, um, trailblazers in their area, and you can connect, you can get mentorship. And um, it's true. Uh, we, we have interns. We are in Europe and we have interns from Hong Kong because they just pulled together. They said, hey, I, can, I cannot go anywhere. I want to learn entrepreneurship. Can I learn it virtually? with you and they just reach out to whoever they want, wherever in the world. And I said, yes, of course, let's do this. Yeah, so, yeah we're 
ago, you'd probably, or two years ago, you'd probably be like, that's so weird. Why did they do that? (laughs) Yeah, nobody would would think about that. It it was there all the time, but nobody would think about it. You would go two streets forward and say, okay, this is where uh, we do internships. And now you can say, well, I can pick where I do my internship. I just have to ask. I know. It, It is amazing. I think it is in a lot of ways, like and even where people live, like I live in Boulder and this is like, it's a very expensive city to live in. And so people want to come work in Boulder. We have like a large startup scene and um, the university and lots of cool labs and stuff. People are like, oh, I don't know. It's like, if I can afford to live in Boulder. Well, it's like, you, I don't really think you have to, right? Like if you can work remotely, you can stay in Europe or Des Moines, Iowa. I don't know if it's expensive to live in Des Moines, but I think it creates that equity or even like Hmm. if you are an hour commute away, if you don't have to commute every day, that hour suddenly is like kind of irrelevant. If you just have to show up for meetings every once in a while. Absolutely. I'm also very excited about what's happening with crypto, especially Bitcoin, that is kind of giving much more access and much more uh, equity uh, to everybody because not everybody can afford banking. Not everybody can has access uh, to to this form of monetary system, but that promises to be a very direct one mm-hmm. that where everybody really uh, on the planet is included. Uh, and this is something quite quite exciting that could happen right now in the in the next couple of years. So it is it's it's the yin and yang, right? We we have we are experiencing both. Who should be my next guest? Oh, okay. Um, well, if you want to continue on uh, the DEI topic, I would recommend um, Mary Frances Waters. I think that's right. And I don't know her personally, but I am just a fangirl. I read her book, um, Black Fatigue. And for books that like changed my perspective, you know, the ageless talent really helped me understand the benefits of age diversity. But this book gave me as someone who's not Black or African-American, really helped me understand that the experiences of Black Americans, and especially like over time, that's something that is, um, it's like continue or inherited trauma and um, challenges that you you are getting from your parents. And I only know my experience, you know, growing up Mexican-American, and I can easily think or imagine that um, everyone's experience is like mine, but you know, this is, it's just a very, very different experience. And I think, um, Winters, Mary Frances Winters should be your next guest. And if you have her, like, let me know. Cause I have to watch, like, I love listening to her speak. I will. And, uh, where do you hang out? Where can people get more of Dr. Stephanie Johnson? <laughs> well, I only hang out in my basement cause I'm still really scared of COVID, but um, I have a webpage, drstephjohnson.com and inclusifybook.com. And same thing on social, um, at drstephjohnson. I love connecting on LinkedIn. Um, I also have an Instagram and Twitter and um, a YouTube. I have a YouTube page. YouTube. Woo! <laughs> yes, no TikTok. Stephanie Johnson, everybody. Follow her everywhere. Beautiful. Thank you, Dr. Thank Stephanie, you. for your work, for sharing your journey, your wisdom with us. And please come back soon. Thank you so much. Avoid trying to do thousands of things that doesn't work. We have 274 templates for your business success. 
reach your ambitious goals with one-on-one -on -one sprint coach. We double your revenue in 90 days.